the drugs work, they do that really, really well. For a lot of gay men, they have consequences too. So my job is to ignore the panics in the media and the misinformation and the ignorance of stupid people and just get the messages out there and try to create as much um, kindness, empathy and healthcare and community kindness as we can. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hi, I'm Christopher Moraff, reporting from Philadelphia, and this is Narcotica. Today on the show, we'll be talking to David Stewart, a longtime British harm reduction advocate who is credited with coining the term chemsex. If you're familiar with that term at all and not a practitioner, it's probably from the rash of sensational headlines that describe it as nothing short of an epidemic. It won't surprise you that's not the way it was intended. Using drugs or other mood-altering substances to enhance sexual enjoyment or to lower inhibitions is probably as old as the first Babylonian drank the first carafe of fermented grape wine. As a product of the free love and drug-saturated 1960s, there is a fair to good chance my own parents were less than sober when I was conceived. But as you'll soon find out, chemsex is a uniquely homosexual phenomenon that both reflects and is reflected by evolving cultural trends in the gay community. Put simply, there is no such thing as heterosexual chemsex, and David Stewart is perhaps the best person to tell us why. Stewart, who has spent decades as a fixture in the London gay community and first began using the term chemsex in the 1990s, has witnessed the fundamental changes in gay culture as homosexuality has become both more acceptable but fleeting inner-based hookups became increasingly ubiquitous and in some cases fraught with potential medical and mental health risks. He has written a document on chemsex harm reduction that can be found on his website, davidstewart.org. As Stewart explains, drugs used during chemsex have evolved along with cultural trends in the gay community, from things like ecstasy and cocaine to stronger disinhibitors like methamphetamine, GHB, and Mephedrone. Stuart joins us from London for what I consider one of the most engaging conversations we've had on this show. So, David, welcome to Narcotica. Hi, thanks. Also joining me are my co-hosts, Zachary Siegel. Hey, guys. And Troy Farah. Hello. David, can you share with us your personal experience in this culture and break down some popular myths? Hi, sure. Um, Chemsex is actually quite specific it's kind of really cultural, the same way that uh, the same way that a, a straight man might put on a wig and a dress. That's not drag, and chemsex is not just sex on drugs and alcohol. It's a very specific use of drugs, uh, sp- particular drugs, and specifically part of gay culture. Chemsex does not happen outside of gay culture. Um, so I'd, I'd like to ask you about that. Um, why does it not happen in uh, heterosexual culture? In, in other words, I mean, as I think I said in an email to you before, um, people have been sort of partying and having sex, um, you know, at least since the 60s, and I'm sure since Roman times. Um, when and why did this become a phenomenon in the gay culture specifically? And um, why is it specifically unique to that culture? 
Okay. Uh, the having sex on drugs or alcohol is not unique to gay men. That's going back probably right back to cavemen times. Um, but there's a very modern phenomenon that's absolutely and intrinsically linked with online hookup culture and modern technologies. That's also linked to some very uniquely gay phenomena, gay, gay lifestyle. I don't know. That's the gay sex stuff. Um, in regard to the, the actual word chemsex, um, the actual kind of reason I, I got so attached to it and sort of felt that it needed to exist was because I was, the reasons when I was having sex on crystal meth and, uh, and methadone back about 20 years ago with loads of people here in London and some of us were getting into lots and lots of problems with it and the, some of the stuff driving it was the fact that we were finding these drugs on Grinder and other hookup apps whereas we hadn't found them in our in, in a normal geographical kind of networks. And we were finding that these drugs made sex better because some of the issues that some of us were having around sex was stuff about and trying to enjoy gay sex with disinhibition and being our sex being connected to this AIDS epidemic that had made our sex about disease and death and danger and risk intrinsically in a very powerful way that made it kind of complicated to just lie back, put your legs in the air and enjoy sex. Um, modern changing things like just committing to having sex with someone that you hadn't met and selling yourself in a very profile way, in a very sort of PR way online. And societal homophobia, the fact that nearly all of the religions we'd ever known hated that we were having gay sex. Some of them was kind of getting used to the idea that gays existed and we lived in the street. Some of the laws were changing and saying we were allowed to exist. Thank you very much. Provided we kept stuff behind closed doors. But that shame was seeping into our ability to just kick back, you know, and enjoy sex and have a great orgasm free from gods and religions and dogmas and societies and toxic masculinity and this was medicating a kind of cult, gay cultural problem about gay sex. And when me and a lot of my friends looked for help, we found ourselves in sort of addiction clinics for, attended by a lot of uh, people who were using like heroin or alcoholism, street homelessness, poverty, crime, that kind of culture. And we're like waving a hand saying, help me with the kind of sex stuff that I'm having, the kind of drug use that I'm having. And just as there have been loads of different uh, health epidemics in the past and drug use epidemics in the past, opium in California in, in the early 1900s amongst Asian Americans was a very different drug use epidemic than um, crack cocaine was in America in, in the 80s. And that's very different to the heroin epidemic that we're kind of seeing now in, in my part of the world, in London and, other, and you know everywhere, really. And that's very different from gay meth sex grinder and it needed to be named we needed to help support services of public health recognition that if we're going to help any person on the planet that it, that might be wanting help with drug use we have to understand the culture and the reasons why the drugs feel good and the reasons why we might do them despite problems developing and if we don't get the culture of it then we're not going to help anybody so chemsex names a cultural use of drugs by a cultural population. There's loads of sexualized drug use by loads of people on the planet that need uniquely cultural support. Chemsex is about gay sex and drugs.
Thank you for that clarification. That's really good background. Yeah, and so I, you know, am, am very new to this topic, and I had uh, recently heard a, a man named Zach Ford give a, a presentation on chemsex. He's from AIDS United, and you know, to your point about the sort of uh, the individual psychological need um, for naming this culture, he spoke very eloquently about how um, internalized homophobia and and shame um, was preventing, you know, people from, like you said, just experiencing sex in in a pleasurable way and and also experiencing sex in a way that wasn't deeply connected to AIDS or, or HIV. And so can you talk about what kind of or the ways in which um, understanding chemsex as a culture begins to chip away at some of these, I guess, uh, internal barriers to um, you know, men who uh, sleep with other men experiencing pleasure. Yeah, just uh, I think that the different drugs kind of serve different purposes. I think like heroin and crack cocaine are, um, well, you don't do those drugs to go out and have a laugh, you know? Don't look at drugs the way pharmacists look at it or just don't look at them chemically. Just really got to understand how they feel when you're in your body. And when people who do heroin aren't doing them so they can go dancing or to have great sex or to go laughing after dinner parties. Obviously they do because it enters lots of different forums, but it serves a particular purpose and it's kind of about numbing pain or managing unmanageable emotions. And it's kind of a, an introverted kind of high of feeling safe and other drugs like ecstasy, MDMA, they're like empathizing drugs. They help you connect and feel confident and engage with communities and you can sort of um, empathize with other people, even in the sexual experience, which is really, really nice. The drugs that kind of define chemsex is crystal methamphetamine, mephedrone, which is not that common in, um, in the Americas, and GHB or GBL, which is very common now. And these drugs just become really normalized almost overnight by gay hookup apps. Um, to the point where you know those of us working in epidemiology and drug use and, and data just saw a complete shift away from ecstasy and cocaine and MDMA to these drugs in a big, big way. And these drugs are different again. They're not so much about sort of an introverted feeling safe high. They're even not so much like ecstasy and MDMA where you can empathize and feel joy and pleasure and connect with other people and feel connected. These drugs are kind of real disinhibitors. I, if they had a big label on them, I'd say they're great disinhibitors, probably the best. And if you are feeling inhibited about anything, but uh, if I can get crude for a minute, it's kind of like if you, if, if I want to put my legs in the air and get fucked by, by my boyfriend or by a stranger, whatever I like, there's things like a culture. I was brought up knowing that anything feminine about me or anything I did, which was acting feminine was the thing that would get me beaten up on the school ground rejected and criticized and ridiculed by my peers and by adults and even by my family, uh, whether it's strange whispers or a clip across the ear or your sister saying that you're embarrassing them for being too camp or too effeminate. And wanting to put your legs in the air and do what is traditionally in my fucked up brain, a feminine role, and that's a complicated sentence in itself. 
it's just hard to do. But give me drugs. I'm like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's weird talking to some straight dudes about this stuff. But no, do, you, no. do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's yeah. Great, a great segue into your, your focus on consent, uh, which you do, um, I feel, strongly in, in much of your literature on this. Um, so can you talk about how these specific drugs, um, first of all, how they're used, are they used in combination generally or, or individually, and then why they could be problematic from a consent point of view and why that, that factors into your focus on harm reduction? Sure. And again, it comes to how these drugs make you feel. I mean, some people who haven't done cocaine and haven't done crystal meth don't really see how they might be really different. But they, um, the way I experience them and, and, and as someone that's worked with over tens of thousands of, of gay men who do these drugs for sex one-on-one -on -one in a very intimate settings uh, in a therapy way, these, these drugs are really different. I mean, methamphetamine is a really, it's a great disinhibitor, but a powerful one. So it doesn't just disinhibit me so I can enjoy sex within and be feminine at the same time or enjoy sex and block out all these HIV prevention messages which are pummeling into my brain and making me think, am I going to catch something or am I going to infect someone else? It's those kinds of disinhibitors, are, I need them to be strong. And with meth, with methadrone of a G, they are strong. They're really powerful, which means they can also inhibit other things too, such as I know when I do cocaine, I still have a concept of not wanting to die today. <laughs> um, I have to say on crystal meth, that it's not so strong. I want to live and experience something now, almost at the expense of my own safety. And it's just a higher threshold for risk and danger. And the more you do it, the greater, the, the, the more boundaries you push over and pass over. So there's loads of different people on the planet and some of them have a great filter for what's appropriate and safe when they're on meth and a whole lot of people don't. So chems specifically just require a really well-honed skill set to remain safe while you're using them and to have a concept of um, not hurting yourself or others or taking huge risks. Um, so that's what, that's what differentiates chems from other kind of drug use, uh, drug use and also what makes chem sex a uniquely defined thing. Because gay men were having sex on ecstasy and cocaine and all other drugs for decades and decades and decades, like in really huge numbers, but all around the world. What we didn't see in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s when gay men were using mostly ecstasy and MDMA and cocaine, we didn't see a whole lot of gay men rushing to A&E departments, to emergency services with acting violently on these drugs. You know, they were just dancing and feeling love. And we didn't see lots of gay men rushing to emergency services with overdoses from ecstasy or, um, or dangerous withdrawal symptoms from the MDMA. We didn't see people dying, in fact. And we didn't see gay men rushing to drug services saying, help me, I'm addicted to my MDMA. We didn't see gay men rushing to drug services saying, help me with, I need some, some needles to inject my uh, cocaine and MDMA in large numbers. But the minute that that huge tide shifted and Grinder and the other apps came about and chems, crystal meth and stuff became wide, much more widely available to that population. Suddenly we did see those things. In London, we're seeing two gay men die a month from these drugs, just trying to enjoy sex, you know, despite the AIDS epidemic, despite toxic masculinity and being able to be effeminate and loving that and finding our feminine brothers sexy and finding disinhibition and gay sex and kink and freedom finding that really, really hard, 
but the drugs do work and they work really, really well. But at the same time, we're seeing gay men just looking for that sex, love and connection, dying in the pursuit of it to a month. And that's similar in other parts of the world, not being recognized by coroners or anything because it's a very new syndemic. It's a new epidemic. I, I went way beyond answering your question again. I'm sorry. No, I, I think your answers are, are quite, uh, quite illuminating. And, and one question about the, about the uh, sort of the increase in morbidity and mortality that, that uh, the UK is seeing right now. So in the US, our drug supply is, is poisoned and new synthetic substances are, are taking over uh, what were previously like agricultural drug markets. And in the UK, uh, are you it, it, are the drugs different? Are the drugs poison? What what is uh what what is in your mind causing the increase in in issues stemming from the drug use? Sure, we're, we're not, the deaths we're seeing are very different from ones you're seeing. You're seeing a lot of fentanyl poisonings um, and adulteration of drugs. Um, and I think a lot of the, you have a heterosexual methamphetamine epidemic, which we don't really have over here to the same scale. So when, commu when communities who experience um, great poverty or poor education or great suffering, um, poor access to healthcare or great injustices, whether they're racial or class injustices, when they start using kind of any drug, it, it, it's more likely to be abused. And so some of the deaths you're seeing are also about long-term abuse of methamphetamine and the degradation of lives and mental health. What we're seeing within the gay community is not that, even though they share many, many things. We don't really have, we're not seeing that number of fentanyl poisonings over here or adulterations, hardly ever in fact. And the deaths that we're seeing are mostly suicides after crystal meth come downs. Like I, I keep forgetting that I'm talking to America because you have methamphetamine looks different and you've got a stigma and you've got campaigns that are very heterosexual focused and it kind of looks like street homelessness and crime and violence and mental health. When gay men are doing crystal meth, it's not every day dependently like it, it is. Um, in your media. It's two or three day episodes just during sex. And then it stops and they go back to work and they get on with their life. And then the next weekend it's happening again, or the month later it's happening then, or then next month there's another circuit party they go to and they do it then. So there's, if there is a descent into chaos and harm, it's kind of happening gradually over time. And the deaths that we're seeing are mostly, quite frankly, GHB or GBL. It's a really easy drug to overdose from it's at one mil of this liquid might give you the perfect high, but 1.8 mil might kill you. And if you've mixed it with alcohol, it's much more likely to. If you've mixed it with ketamine, it's much more likely to. If you've been awake for two days on crystal meth and you're not measuring that one mil in the right kind of instrument very well, or it's built up in your body, then the chances of a deadly fatal overdose are really, really high. So most of the deaths we're seeing are G overdoses mixed with a speckle of suicides from um, the drug-induced psychosis from a, a two-day crystal meth episode. Um, I'd like to just um, reflect back again to when this sort of became a phenomenon. Does it does it does it arise in the '80s? When does chemsex as as a term first used? So I was um, my I've got a, my history was um, uh, I was 
uh, a sex worker at age 19 or 20, and I had AIDS, uh, not HIV, AIDS, a couple of times. I won't explain how that's possible, but it, it, it a multiple a period of poor health and at a time when there were no medicines. And so we were dying and I was given an AIDS diagnosis and sort of waiting to die. So I had a little trauma and it was absolutely connected to my experience of sex as well. You know, when you uh, infect somebody uh, in the 80s who you love because he's your boyfriend or whatever and he dies and you're expecting to die too but you don't because then some medicines become invented in 1996, which kind of saved us. And then you get well and you're not going to die after all. And you're going to have a life and you have to get a job and you have to form relationships and find a new relationship with sex. And this, it's very complicated. And there's a whole millions of my gay brothers of my generation sort of dealt with that. My way of dealing with it was, uh, chaotic in the end, but I did a whole lot of drugs and I had a great time mostly, but it led to um, a, a descent into a bit of chaos. I ended up being arrested for drug dealing. Um, and it was at that time that I, my life kind of turned around a bit and I found myself working in a sort of uh, a drug service. But around that time when I was still using it, I'd been using for decades, mostly ecstasy and cocaine and MDMA. And it wasn't that problematic. I was having a good time. It was fun. And I'd sort of have a rotten Monday or Tuesday. Um, but great memories of the people I'd met and the dancing and the kind of the sex I'd had and the kissing that went for hours and the people that I adored. And then Gaydar was introduced. Um, and I was only just trying to learn what this computer thing was that I had to get. And there's this Gaydar on it. And right before Gaydar, I'm talking about 1999, um, some air stewards, our cabin crew, were bringing crystal meth back from Cape Town and San Francisco, where it was more crystal meth was more popular. But in London, there was a hardly many any of us doing it. There was about ten or fifteen or twenty, it seemed, that knew those cabin crew guys bringing it over that were kind enough to share it. So we were all shagging each other, and we kind of didn't like each other very much, and we kind of <laughs> got bored with each other because we were a really kind of small, bitchy group of horny gay men in saunas and bathhouses, but. That was when we called ourselves kind of uh, ironically and kind of cruel and kind of, we called ourselves Chemsex Club. And that's when um, the word kind of came around. And then when Gaydar happened and the internet happened and suddenly our lives went from public toilets and from hidden gay bars with black painted windows and bathhouses, it suddenly went onto our smartphones. And, and suddenly there was a new platform for drugs too. So the things like, the very small availability of crystal meth at the time, suddenly, like really overnight and around the year 2000, just exploded and seemed like everyone online was doing it and it shared the drugs and it shared the people and it shared the awareness of it. And before you know it, that chemsex club was just, it, it, that there was no such thing. It was just seemed like everybody was doing it. And that word just became really popular online um, somehow to my shock. And when I started working in a drug service and I was very shocked that nearly all the people coming to this drug service were, um, were mostly heterosexual and they were mostly using particular drugs like heroin and crack cocaine and like very problematic alcohol use. And they, the people working in those drug services were really good at doing their job. They had great outreach teams. They understood homeless street culture. They understood 
sort of clipping and, and, and street sex work in order to raise money. And I understood what it was like to break a window of a car to steal some money to pay for the heroin, which was very addictive that you needed. And I was like, where are all my gays that I went to the bathhouses with? It's a very different culture. So the very first campaign that I, they invited me to create a campaign to get the gays in. And it was, I made it a chemsex campaign. And that was when that word chemsex first sort of crossed over to becoming like a kind of healthcare term, uh, but kind of unconsciously by me. And it was really only like nine years after that where someone suggested that, um, where did that word come from? And I think when I first heard of it and people searched for it and it seems like I had somehow created it. And so it was a, I'm glad that the word existed because it, since then we've been able to find out how do you let all those guys who might be wanking at home for three days and feeling paranoid and psychotic or the guys that are having the best sex of their lives on these drugs but never learned how to do it sober, are having great chemsex parties uh, and great connected, sexy, horny times on the weekend but are struggling with the basics of human connection forming relationships, conflict resolution, arguing with someone in the morning over who uses the shower first. And these kind of basic skills that we learn in connecting and in one night stands, they were kind of missing. And so chemsex names something so people don't feel alone and freakish. It helps public health create health services where gay men can get the specific help in how do I write my grinder profile? How do I get the harm reduction information particularly about how not to catch HIV or hepatitis C when I'm doing chemsex drugs in chemsex environments? Because guys aren't injecting on the street. They're in gorgeous, sweaty bedrooms. How do you get the messages in there? So chemsex sort of became a phenomenon word that helped helped us and helped my community name and identify a very cultural phenomenon and create the right kind of community responses for it. Thank you Thanks. so much about that. I'm kind of curious how uh, PrEP plays a role in this community. Uh, that's pre-exposure prophylaxis. Yeah, it's hugely important. It's a game changer. So as someone who has been living with HIV for 30 years and remembers the time when AIDS was a very real thing, even in our big cities, um, when you died from it and everyone you knew died from it. And medicines came around in 1996, which kind of helped treat it and keep us safe. And so I will, uh, nearly anyone that gets diagnosed in a, in a city that has good health care um, will get diagnosed. They'll go on treatment immediately, which they will hopefully enjoy. It doesn't have many side effects. They'll become uninfectious very fast, like within a few months. So they'll never pass HIV onto anyone else and they will die from it and they'll live long, healthy lives, big deal, all over. But there are, of course, lots of people who it's um, highly stigmatized. So people who feel still scared to come and get tested, even though the care is great. There are people who um, live with HIV without taking the medicine because they're frightened to go and get tested and find out they've got it and get that diagnosis. And that's how people catch HIV from other people who are HIV positive but don't know it and aren't on that medicine that makes us uninfectious. So PrEP is a relatively new thing. It's only been around a couple of years. It's not available everywhere. Um, healthcare access makes it different and complicated in different countries and cities. But essentially, anyone who's HIV negative, who takes PrEP, perhaps every day of their life or just around their sexual weekends, for instance, cannot catch HIV no matter what they do. So if I was HIV and infectious 
uh, and and I came inside any of you guys and you were on prep, you can't catch it from me. And if someone was anyone who might be HIV positive and doesn't know it and could infect anyone, they can't infect anyone who's taking this prep medicine. So it's a real game changer in, in addressing our epidemics and enjoying sex without being frightened of HIV and being able to help people stay safe even when we don't use condoms or do, uh, you know, or don't use condoms every time. In regard to chem sex, it's really, really important too, because of course, there are loads of guys who sort of don't want to catch HIV. Most people don't want to catch HIV, of course, obviously. So when you, but when you're high on drugs and you're just in the in the moment and your filter is off of what's good for me, you don't really care about tomorrow. You don't care what money you're spending. You, there is no tomorrow. It's all about now, and you're in this moment of great connection and horniness and sex and pleasure, and it, it overwhelms your sense of practicality. Tomorrow, money I'm spending, health. And so people um, who do chemsex might not always be taking the right kind of precautions to help them stay safe from HIV. But PrEP is just a simple pill and make sure you won't catch it. So in regard to managing HIV epidemics amongst gay men who are using who are enjoying chemsex, it is, it is like an extremely extraordinary HIV prevention tool. Is it true that you can um, kind of pass on a high by ejaculating in someone else? Like if you're high on meth and you ejaculate into another person, they can experience that drug high no that's a great fetish though but no <laughs> yeah that would have to be an insane concentration of meth in that uh ejaculate <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, one i've never heard before yeah that that's like uh yeah put that file that in the um obscure uh honestly i heard it from my mom and i didn't have a chance to fact check it so i'm glad you can debunk that for us why are you talking about these things with your mom what is <laughs> do normal people not talk about these things with their mom um i'll definitely tell my mom to listen to this episode and then never talk to me about this I again <laughs> um david i'm particularly interested in some of the stuff you said around just the way drugs are viewed and like sort of the socioeconomic and cultural aspects of, of drug use. And, you know, in Philadelphia, for instance, we're very, very low on the meth spectrum until very recently, um, unlike uh, much of the West. So um, in Philadelphia, it was largely Tina and it was in the gay community. You know, it was, it was just seen that way as a, as a drug that was associated with good times kind of, you know, and, and, it, and not the sort of, perspective that maybe somebody like Troy from Arizona has. Um, and on the flip side of that, you know, there's also just the term chemsex has sort of like evolved from something that I think the first time I heard it sounded like, oh, oh, that sounds awesome, to like almost like this moral panic now around the deaths and the, and the media has jumped in. Um, and, you know, like I think called, I think I'm reading something on BuzzFeed that said it's chemsex crime wave was the headline. And, um, you know, and then so the way we use words and the way words change it based on context and culture. Um, would you speak to that a little bit? I mean, you already did, but I, I suppose if you could talk to it a little well, bit. I, I, I just want to add one thing here. So if you Google chemsex, um, you know, the first things that come up are American news outlets and they're saying, quote, gay chemsex is fueling HIV epidemics in Europe. So that's NBC News, that's Reuters, and then a couple down there, actually, David Stewart, your name comes up. And so in, in the U.S., there's for sure uh, a moral panic around uh, chemsex uh, coming from the media and like, um, 
and, and yeah, I'm thinking like in the in the UK, like does this kind of same moral valence uh, uh, show up in the in like the health services or the media or anything like that? And I would add that in the U.S., it's often associated with race or socioeconomic class. So the cocaine parties of, you know, whatever, the disco age were viewed differently than, you know, the crack smoking of the, you know, the 80s. So um, and so if that factors in at all, um, has has chem sex evolved in the way it's viewed? Oh, wow. OK, you guys go deep. Um, I think that. Uh, uh, I wish we didn't have to talk about chem sex at all. I really do. I wish that I the 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 sex gay men were having could we could just have it without the media and the forgive me straight people judging it, um, or gay people judging it, or media outlets judging it, or anyone. You know, I just wish it could have just sailed beautifully into gay men have sex where other people have sex and sort of that joy, and a certain number of them experience problems with it because of drugs or because of you know STIs or whatever. I, I, I can't speak to why. Um, I think moral panic is. I, I don't know anyone panicking except I just I need to read stories about panics, but I don't see anyone panicking except a journalist here or there that has a big reach. Um, what I do see is a dialogue about it. I do know that I've had that um, pressure. Uh, I've had that, um, yeah, responsibility, I guess, of how do you introduce a new public health phenomenon that needs to be talked about because it really is quite huge without people misunderstanding it because unfortunately it's about gay sex and drugs and death and pleasure and orgies and fun so uh, how can you teach the world to talk about that nicely when we're still emerging from an AIDS epidemic when my community remembers headlines saying all gays should be stuck on an island because we deserve to die because it's a punishment from God and that's what AIDS is all about talk about moral panic uh, and now it wouldn't it be nice if chemsex could just hide in a closet and we don't talk about it at all that would be great and I wish we could. I can't tell you how much wish wish we could. I wish that these drugs weren't hurting as so many people as they were. I wish, uh, I, I hope that all the people that are enjoying them without pleasure sort of can just enjoy it without all this stigma and stuff attached to it. But we do have to talk about it, and I don't know how we talk about it without stupid people getting all stupid about it. I don't know how to do that. But I know, I know that I can't stop talking about it to try to avoid that. I, I can't let that stop me. Because there have been many times when people said, David, stop talking about it. People will misunderstand it. They'll misinterpret it. They'll write that headline or the right headline. And of course, I've been associated with that word for decades now. So there are periods when there is a particular, um, air quoting here, moral panic from the media. There was an article recently that was based on something a doctor said at an AIDS conference which I wish he hadn't fucking said because, because he has so much clout as a senior AIDS clinician and it was such a big global conference and he said it to Reuters. So it just went fucking everywhere. There is no, and since we have had PrEP, we're seeing great management of chemsex around the world. We're seeing great management of the HIV epidemic in the big cities around the world. And he just got that wrong. And this month we're seeing this, Again, air quote, moral panic in, in news media. I will, I've seen it before. I'll see it pass. I'll see it happen again and I'll see it pass. My job and hopefully yours and hopefully uh, the, a job which is 
a message which is reaching the listeners here today is that there are stupid people that the minute you say gay sex, they'll say sluts, orgies, filthy, diseased, fucked animals. And I can't stop that, not this generation, but I will try. I know that I have to talk about objectively and kindly about my gay brothers who are enjoying sex and connection, love and horniness, and all these things are entitled to. And a lot of them are needing to manage that and medicate that with really, really harmful drugs and aren't getting the right education to stay safe with them or the right support services to help them afterwards. So I don't care about moral panics and I don't care. I do care, but not a lot I can do. The world will be what it is. I mean, I know I'm talking to a country which has a president who was elected by Fox News, fucking hell, and... The world is nuts. world is nuts. Um, chemsex is happening. It's a gorgeous way of gay men who have come through a difficult few decades trying to enjoy sex and pleasure and connection and disinhibition. But drugs work. They do that really, really well. For a lot of gay men, they have consequences too. So my job is to ignore the panics in the media and the misinformation and the ignorance of stupid people and just get the messages out there and try to create as much um, kindness, empathy, and healthcare and community kindness as we can. Wow, thank you. That's really great. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important way of saying it is like the world is going to uh, always react to, you know, drugs and sex and and these issues in stupid, idiotic ways. And, and but I think you're right, like, just us talking about it uh, in a normal I think uh, curious and interested way uh, is important. And in America, I don't frankly hear these conversations happening that much. All, all I see are the are the headlines. And so I think uh, just just talking about it is a big deal. I mean, I'm really pleased that you've invited me on. And I really, I know you've got, you know, I've read your stuff and you, you're really on it in regard to harm reduction and destigmatizing messages and the right to pleasure and being safe and the access to good healthcare and harm reduction information. And so you've, you, you, if there is a bad media in your part of the world, you're doing your bit. So thank you for having me on and thank you for letting me ramble and speak so passionately and rudely about my sex life and the sex lives of my brothers. I really appreciate that. So I don't despair. I, I don't despair. Good messages get out there by good people thank you i also appreciate you distinguishing between drugs i mean it's it you you talked about sort of the you know the way things changed as as more methamphetamine and, and uh, you know transition from ecstasy and i think i think that we you know often take sides on these things right you know and and so you know while i may be an anti-prohibitionist you know that that doesn't mean i think all drugs are good or safe for for right for everyone right um you know, I know that I couldn't drop a hit of acid right now and probably deal with it appropriately. But, um, you know, I think it's important to, um, for us in the pro-harm reduction community, I would say, you know, to to be aware of the, those messages. And I think you did a really good job of that. Thanks, Chris. That's kind. Are you on acid right now? <laughs> uh, I've never tried to do like journalism, quote unquote, on acid. I, I, I'm not Hunter Thompson. I don't want to try it. I would probably, it would probably just take me like three hours to write an email and like I wouldn't be able to do anything. <laughs> well, we usually do drugs that help us achieve a purpose. And that's an important thing to know in regard to chemsex. We're not, ecstasy doesn't help us achieve achieve the same purpose that meth does. Meth and, and, and G and, and methadone in parts of the world, they 
they do, they're being done for a reason. It's not just for an experimental fund. They're serving a very distinct purpose in helping us overcome inhibitions we have around sex. Understandable inhibitions because gay sex is fucking complicated over the last few decades, really. If God isn't standing at the end of your bed when you're trying to shag your fucking mate, then your, your fucking homophobic dad is or society is or there's some great death wish waiting for you at the end. It's no wonder we need to find the right kind of drug to medicate it. Acid just wouldn't do that job for us, I'm afraid. I have tried it. Yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to like that that there is intention around the drug use. And, and I wish that was talked about more because all we get uh, in a media representation is just like, uh, totally reckless, uh, you know, indiscriminate use of sex and drugs and your experience and what you're seeing and saying is like the opposite, that it's actually, uh, it's to achieve an end and it's specific and intentional, which is uh, say all drugs is about that. I mean, I keep hearing about drug problems. And so I, what I'm, one of the things I'm sort of, uh, again, a quote sort of famous for is as an activist was um, naming this gay cultural syndemic or epidemic of chemsex and lifting the care and the support out of traditional addiction drug problem services into places where we talk about gay sex really easily. Um, I, I work in a place where we have thousands and thousands of people coming, gay men coming to talk about gay sex, thousands, and they're coming willingly, and they're not coming, not a single one of the guys I've worked with in various places in my career who are coming to talk about chemsex. I'd say almost not a single one is coming to identify a drug problem. And nearly every single one of them is coming with problems to do with gay sex and grinder and hooking up and rejections and weird highs, but none of them are identifying a drug problem. They're identifying a kind of gay sex problem and the drugs are helping them, helping them to address the problem with some consequences sometimes. And so I think why chemsex as a phenomenon has been helpful to me and my community and successful to a degree is because it's never been perceived as a drug problem. It's a gay cultural issue that where we talk and address the gay sex, which is the cause of it all. Um, and making it better, making it enjoyable and dealing with the consequences and the drugs as a separate tool that's managing that problem. So for, for like a young gay man is that, is that uh, coming up, is, is there sort of a, a, a kind of peer pressure around being promiscuous or pushing boundaries or, or the, did the grinder culture sort of like permeate, you know, youth and, and make them feel like they had to do more than they were comfortable with? And could that? Yeah, there's a huge generational difference here. I mean, and no generation is necessarily um, differently exposed to chemsex, but they are differently. Uh, let me put it differently. Sorry. I'm 52. So when I was 22, um, yeah, AIDS was there. AIDS was there and we were living with it. But what my typical thing, as the sluttiest I could be, was to have a one-night stand. That's, you know, if I was having one-night stand every, every night of the week, that was pretty slutty. And I'm pretty cool about being slutty. I didn't mind at all. But it was kind of different because I would talk to someone for at least 15, 20 minutes over a beer before, while I was negotiating, if there was someone I'd be having sex with and vice versa. And there's facial expression stuff and nuances and flirts and bonding and stuff that helps you realize, am I safe if I make myself vulnerable with this person in 20 minutes time? And 
I would wake up the next morning with a hangover and I wouldn't be able to remember their name and they wouldn't be able to remember mine. And we have to have that conversation where we pretend that we do or hope the other person acknowledges it first. And then we would argue over Margaret Thatcher while we're trying to have breakfast. And I really just want him gone and he really wants me gone, but we're doing the right thing and talking to each other because that's what our mums taught us. And in those morning moments, there's really important tools happening like conflict resolution, communication, kindness, um, uh, resolving issues and problems kind of together as a couple. That's as slutty as I could be. But what new generations of gay men and what hookup culture and online hookup culture is doing is it's shifting that sex to guys are, are, are committing to having sex someone after looking at a picture of their abs and a few hi, how you doing chats. It's a commitment to having sex with someone they haven't met or bonded with or had that facial recognition or any communication with at all, showing up at that house and with all of the expectations of having to deliver to someone where there has been no bonding or connection formed yet. And that pressure and whatever is required to get through that sexual situation, if it goes well, navigating HIV prevention or HIV discussions or stigma, navigating things like putting your legs in the air or being top or bottom or... Um, rejection rejection and then after the orgasm they're gone and often blocked using the block feature and so there's newer generations younger guys are dealing with different things one there is a normalization to a degree on grinder like like if my a, a guy um who logs on to grinder for the very first time might be introduced to chems the very same within the same hour drugs that he might might have, might have taken him months to come across in normal geographical social circles, but because of the app, he's introduced to it immediately in a vacuum of dialogue or healthcare messages and in a fury of needing to live up to expectations and be sexy and cope with rejection and the drugs serve a really good purpose. So peer pressure is probably the same kind of thing, I guess. We're talking about a normalisation of drugs and the availability of it so widely and in such a perfect environment. So younger people are dealing with the same problem, but sometimes for very different reasons. They are less frightened, perhaps, hopefully, of HIV than I might be, given my trauma and my, that my generation experienced. So yes, it's pan-generational, but kind of different for generations. Have, have you or, or, or anyone else, and I, I'm totally ignorant to, to this if it's, if it's happening, um, is Grindr or is anyone approaching these platforms about, uh, you know, any responsibility on their end to promote uh, public health messages and harm reduction and safety within the technology? Yes. It's kind of, I keep mentioning, I've mentioned Fox News twice now, but it's kind of, Grindr is the Fox News of the gay community. It's just, <laughs> they won't help. They, um, it's a money-making organization that makes a lot of money. And if I don't really know what's going on there. There's lots of angry activism within the gay community of trying to engage with them. A lot of resistance from Grindr to address that. Um, they, I, I think what's going on is there might be a moment where Grindr is accused of being one of the greatest platforms for drug availability for a vulnerable population that's ever existed in the history of the universe. And that is something that they really want to avoid, but they kind of know is a reality. And one of the ways to avoid it is don't talk about it. And that's a bit fucked up. Uh, so there've been some movements. They did a, a Kinder on Grinder campaign and got a, I think it was a drag queen to come and promote this. And they made a gesture, but no, it's awful. The, 
we're all dealing with technology and, and, and sex and hookup apps and new you know, politics interfering with these things. And there are sex workers who can't do their job anymore because of policing of sex talk on all kinds of apps and um, social networks. Grindr's not doing their bit, no, to answer your question shortly. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, because like, like with Facebook in America and, and, and Twitter, like the, a lot of people accuse these platforms of, uh, you know, sowing misinformation or, or everything. And then always the, the response from the platforms is we're an open platform, you know, our job or our responsibility is not to, you know, police people's speech, et cetera. And, and I feel like, yeah, it, like they fall back on like first amendment stuff. And I think a lot of that is really just, I mean, in my opinion, like a cop out and they're really dropping the ball. I, I mean, um, I mean, I agree with you. It might be really hard for them because maybe they're sort of ignorant um, guys in, um, you know, quite lovely uh, guys in monogamous relationships who do their work in the office and then go home to their sofa and they're not really aware of how big this chemsex problem is and they read some alarming newspaper headlines and just think it's moral panic and don't think it's real. And so they think that being quiet about it is kind of doing the gay community a favour. Or maybe they, they don't want to police gay sex and drug use because we don't want that policed anyway. What we want is very clever, supportive messages and access to information without stigma or shame. And that's kind of hard for stupid people to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what policing would, would even look like, but my, my, you know, if I were in charge of any of these things, I would at least have tools available and resources available and information at the ready for, you know, people who are looking for it, sort of like the way, you know, Dance Safe sets up uh, a tent at a festival. And, and even that, you know, that they get shut down doing that kind of thing. And promoters, you know, bury their heads in the sand. And it's almost like there's like a, like grinder would be in violation of like the a digital crack house statute for even acknowledging that, that, that um, not only is sex being, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know if transacted is the right way to say it, but not only is sex happening on the app, but also drug sharing or dealing or something. Well, and, and you brought up, um, so I'm 48, I'm close to your age, David, and, and Troy and Zach are a bit younger than me, but you know, you brought up the cultural differences and, and there is something around sort of like fear and shame that makes people self-police in a way. And, you know, at, at in my generation, even as a heterosexual male, like I thought I was going to die from sex, you know, I mean, AIDS, the AIDS scare was so big when I, like, I guess when I was graduating in high school that, um, you know, the idea of having unprotected sex was like just kind of unheard of, you know? Um, and so it's, it's almost like, I mean, I don't want to say that there's anything good that could come of shame or, or a fear of something of, of, of there being a, um, some kind of, um, pain or penalty or sickness from your, your behaviors. But it's like, I think they've done studies that when, you know, the seatbelt was, in, was introduced, you know, people started driving faster. I mean, there is sort of this reverse kind of like thing that goes on, but um, it, you know, it's, an, it, it's like, where do you draw a line? Yeah, I agree that we have here, you know, we have the first amendment, so we can't, you know, really tell a company that they can't do it. They're, they're just a platform for people to meet, you know? Um, but I would think the responsible thing would certainly be to provide resources, especially if you're making so much money off ads, you know. 
I would like to think so. I mean, you guys and perhaps a lot of your listeners go to a lot of the harm reduction conferences. And so we all know how hard it is to get that message right and how frequently people get those messages wrong. You know, walking the line of not judging someone's behaviour and not policing it, um, providing messages of caution without uh, fear tactics. It's kind of a nuanced, clever, sensitive thing to be done that takes some experience and training and um, trial by error. So I don't, despite what I said earlier, I don't want to be too judgmental. These big, big platforms who are getting that wrong. I do invite them to contact the right people and try to have those conversations to get it right because people are dying in large numbers and we do have to make those efforts. So as much as I, I did just sort of slander Grinder, I uh, thank you for what you just said and I kind of want to scale that back now and, and make it, make myself at least and lots of people in my community, approachable people for these big platforms because I want to help. We have to do everything and I, have to, I can't just be angry at people and organisations. I've got to do better than that if I want to care for my community better. Yeah, and in terms of, um, you know, getting, uh, like I, I, I can't help but think about the sort of vacuum of information in the US and really the only organization I know of that um, is addressing chemsex is, is AIDS United. And and I only know that because I just met Zach Ford and I, I'm sure there's such a huge gap of resources and, and knowledge and, and tools in the US because we don't have a David Stewart, at least that I know of here. And so I, I feel like, um, you know, uh, will probably need to definitely list whatever U.S. resources on this issue. Um, sure, there are. I, I hear, I mean, I've been there a few times. I know that there's, um, there's, there is quite a lot going on, a lot of brilliant people doing a lot of things. I think the challenges in America that are different from Europe is that you've got a meth, a, a general, a generic, almost heterosexual meth epidemic. And a lot of people, when they've been trying to address chemsex in America, um, all of the care keeps accidentally and innocent leaning towards meth addiction use in a generic way. And I think if, if there's a lesson from Europe that it is, I, please, it is a gay cultural thing. Call it that, name it that, don't be ashamed to do it that and set your support services up because gay use of meth and, and, and G and chemsex is, requires something very different than, than your heterosexual meth addicts need in regard to care and that's where i think that a lot of people keep falling through the gaps people think wow chemsex and they look into a bit and they realize that meth is involved and so they start sort of making the meth addiction centers a little more gay friendly but it needs a lot more than that and that's not cultural competence that's uh, a good attempt but not good enough you know there's some amazing services doing amazing work in the states thank you david this has been very educational and i'm really pleased to be on and um I've never spoken to anyone that, that got chemsex exactly the way I would like they got it because I'm that <laughs> three straight men from the US. <laughs> I mean, uh, like I, I know even just like trying to write about um, you know harm reduction in the US, like there are so many critics out there, and you know I have their little voices in my head when I'm writing to make sure I, I get it right, and I, I care about whereas representing them accurately, and I think that's what. Uh, we try to do on this show. And, um, and I think, uh, yeah, you, um, definitely, uh, are an inspiration and thank you so much for, um, 
coming on and being open with uh, three straight dudes. <laughs> Thank you, all three straight dudes. It was You've got such kind voices and kind attitudes. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, David. Is there uh, anything else that you wanted to mention or anything you want to plug, any way people can reach you? No, I mean, if you Google David Stewart, Chemsex, you'll, you'll fucking find me everywhere. And um, <laughs> nearly all of the stuff that's around is hopefully helpful hopefully informative, very true to my heart, born out of great passion and really designed out of all of the calls for help that I get around the world. So hopefully it is helpful. The only message I want to finish with is that none of this needs to be any problem if we were all kinder to each other in the bedroom, kinder about other people's sex lives and our own sex lives and more in love with the vulnerability we take into sexual situations. And none of this would be a problem at all. Yeah. I really like that you keep bringing this back to pleasure because that's something that I believe all people have a right to. And and that's important to emphasize that, you know, even in the harm reduction community, there's these people that are like, let's just try to get people off drugs slowly at their own pace. But eventually the idea is to build a world of sub sobriety, which is not logical. I think that we should have a world where we realize these chemicals exist, they're going to be used for certain purposes, and that's okay. Yeah, and there are some of us on the planet, not just gays, but some of us who really struggle to get pleasure in sex. You know, I mean, imagine imagine being a woman in the deep heart of, of uh, Islam practice and trying to enjoy sex where you can get stoned to death for experiencing pleasure. I mean, pleasure around sex is problematic for a lot of us. So, yeah, as you say, sympathy and empathy for anyone that might need to medicate that. It's not realistic to think or expect anyone to just lie back and take that for the rest of our lives. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, David. It was really a pleasure. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. We're on all the socials as well, YouTube, SoundCloud, whatever. If you like the program, you can support us on Patreon. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, and our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music by Mon Plaisier. Narcotica is an ad-free program, and we want to keep it that way. So thank you so much to our Patreons who help keep this program free from corporate influence. We couldn't do it without you. If you want to help us out, join dozens of pro-drug advocates on our Patreon. Or help us get the word out. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, whatever. Tell your friends about us and spread the word at your local needle exchange. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about how chemsex impacted your life, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.